looking for the King of Podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. What up, Crazy Train Radio? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Mm, I love scotch. I love scotch. Scotch has got scotch. Here it goes down. Down into my belly. Mm-mm-mm. Don't mess with me, I'm one crazy mofo. With over 30 years of experience and a superb reputation for being a detail-oriented company, Lacey Cleaning has some of the highest work standards in the cleaning business. That's the fact, Jack! Whether it's carpet cleaning, tile, grout cleaning, new construction cleanup, rental turnovers, vent and duct cleaning, odor elimination, office and or business cleaning, power washing, residential cleaning, you name it, they do it. Check them out to contact them today, LaceyCleaning at gmail.com or call them at 609-709-8536. That's what I'm talking about. Wow! Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. Now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies.
For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while in cell block 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. <laughs> who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Hi, this is Dean Cundy. I'm talking to you with great delight on Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, the croc, Jonathan Steele. And boy, do we have a good one for you today. All right, folks, he is one of the most prolific and talented cinematographers to reign supreme with his striking and accomplished photography. Dean Cundy has carved out one of the most well-known careers as a cinematographer and many other jobs. And he's worked with some of the most well-known heavyweights in film, guys like John Carpenter, Robert Zemeckis, Steven Spielberg. He's one of Kodak's 100 best cinematographers of all time when they did a vote. His name, again, Dean Cundy. Dean, how are you doing? Very well. And how are you? Can't complain. I'll first start out with this. I know things have been nuts worldwide, especially in our country. Lack of management, other things, that's a whole different discussion. But how have you been holding up with things, with uh, how they are? Well, pretty well, I think. Um, I've been uh, essentially quarantining at home, um, with the exception of, um, you know, I... I get out uh, once or twice a week, but only on Zoom. You know what I mean? And uh, <clears throat> so I, I still see people, but uh, I'm sitting in the same chair all the time. But, um, you know, it, it's, um, it's an unusual time. And, um, you know, I, I get to uh, look at the world in a little different way. This is true, but 
what do you think as far as the entertainment side of things? Uh, you've been involved with the film production side of things for many years. That's got to be unique from your perspective on a professional front as well, correct? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. There are certain jobs that um, people can work from home. You know, if you work for an insurance company or, um, you know, finance company or something like that, it becomes pretty easy to work in front of your computer at home um, as much as it is on the computer. Those kinds of things happen. The entertainment business is unique in that it requires a bunch of people, a bunch of talented people, to uh, work together in very close space, um, creating a film, um, a TV show, whatever. And to try to change that is very difficult. We're, we're working on all of these um, oh, alternative plans, you might say, of how, how can we accomplish the creative work we do by uh, separating people and testing them and doing this very elaborate, uh, very elaborate process that's, um, it's, it hinders what we used to do in the past. Um, you know, films are being written now. I was reading recently about how to write a contained film. That is very few characters, um, no big giant crowd scenes and, and uh, parties and, and uh, groups of six people. Um, there are things that um, everybody uh, asks about, like love scenes. How do you get two actors not close together in a love scene? You know, so, so we have to test them and isolate them and go to a lot of trouble. So I was talking recently with a, with a guy who is putting together a film that he hopes we will work on in October. And what he, uh, what he has to do is figure out how to, um, how to keep people separate, how to work with these new guidelines and still uh, make a creative film. And um, so it's, it's going to be an interesting um, few years, I think. Well, that is definitely going to be short, or I shouldn't say short, but definitely going to be a unique process and already a unique process. But speaking exactly. of, it, but speaking of unique processes, at least from your perspective, when you agree to do a job and you were sent, you know, things like your script and everything else that you would see in pre-production, what is your personal process in terms of trying to lay out what you need to do or what you might need help with in completing a task based on the information you have on the script? Well, that's a good question. Of course, it varies from, from show to show, um, whether it's a feature or a, a TV episode or, you know, and uh, I don't do a lot of commercials, but guys who do commercials, you know, it's a, it's a different process. But for me, um, I read the script. Um, usually I read it through once, uh, just as if I were a viewer. 
just for the story, the characters, the situations. Um, and then, um, then I'll go back and read it again, and I'll dive in a little deeper with analyzing uh, the locations and the uh, potential uh, use of the camera and uh, the storytelling, the visual storytelling. How do you, how do, you do it um, effectively for that particular script and those characters? And then um, I'll start to make some notes, but I, I find that I don't do a lot of, um, I guess, pre-visualizing in a way that is just mine. I like to react to what the director wants, what the production designer wants as far as sets and locations, um, all of the, the various creative parts of it. Uh, because it's such a collaborative thing that if I were to just say, okay, this is what we're going to do, I would be making just my movie. And we have to make our movie. Yeah, that's an interesting point because once you go through the script there a couple of times, as you said, you bring up a good point in terms of there is a couple of hands in a cookie jar per se, in terms of, like you said, you got your perspective, you have the director's perspective, then you have production design, you know, you got these several hands in the cookie jar. So how, or how is it decided? What is the best perspective to get the best product on the film, whether it's TV commercial or film, like you said, with these different venues? Well, um, as I said, I, I take my cue from the director. Uh, does he or she, have a vision? Can they describe the movie that they want to make? Um, do they have any prep work that they've done previously, like concept art and storyboards and, uh, and um, anything visual or references that um, sort of give me a clue as how they are thinking about the particular movie? Some directors have um, a very strong vision. They know what it is they want to do. Uh, other directors have different um, skill levels or different um, ideas of, of what the film should be. Um, some, some directors come at it from the uh, idea of character and, and the actors um, and, or maybe the story, but will leave a lot of the visuals and the, the, um, you know, the, the, the visualizing to me, to come up with um, things that I think they would like in their movie or that I think is an effective way to, uh, to tell the particular story. So it runs the gamut from very, very specific uh, directors to directors who are very open. Well, speaking of visual, which is a big part of your job, obviously, as a cinematographer, how has the change of technology helped you, but also hurt you in the process process of doing your job? Well, it's it's interesting. Um, one of the um, one of the things that's occurred recently, and by recently I say maybe ten years, is a is a huge change over to the new digital world of capturing images. It used to be on film a physical medium that would go into the camera. 
Um, we're all familiar with that kind of process because uh, a lot of people used to take stills. Now they whip up their phone. Um, so um, it it's sort of like that, but whereas we used to, um, as young folks, uh, take pictures on film. Now we don't even think about that. We just pull out the phone and we get a digital image immediately, immediate gratification. Well, the, uh, the film business is very similar. It used to be very structured kind of thing. You put the film in, the camera, everything that you want captured on the film, the image, you had to do in front of the lens, lighting and shadow and, and um, of course, the production design and all of that. But, but my, my uh, work was done in front of the lens as far as creating the look. Now um, it's possible to not have to wait for the dailies the next day to find out, did you make all the right choices? Uh, in some places, did you make all the right guesses? Um, now there's a monitor on the set that shows exactly what the, capture, uh, the camera is capturing. And um, you, can, you can see instantly the effect of your work um, and everybody can look at it and say, oh yeah, uh, the costume looks great. The set is wonderful. I can look at it and say, yeah, the, the lighting evokes the, um, the mood, uh, the style, the storytelling. And um, <clears throat> so it's, um, it's a different process, you know, now the director can see exactly what he's getting and make, make changes. Um, even the producer can come in and look and say, oh, why is it so dark over there? And uh, you have to explain, you still haven't put the light in there yet. Oh, okay. So um, everybody has the chance to see and um, visualize the film. And it may a more immediate kind of uh, you know, experience, but also uh, it it makes for a, a lot more collaboration because uh, everybody can see the results they're getting, not guess at it. But do you like that in terms of the being digital that you can actually see everything and you can make changes on the spot instead of having to spend another half a day essentially guessing like you're saying? Yeah, I, I think so. I was a little apprehensive at first, and the technology at first was um, was a little bit, um, I don't know, I, I would say marginal as far as how sharp the image was, how, what, how well the, uh, the color uh, of what's in front of the camera ended up on the, uh, the image. But as it's gotten better and better, um, now it's possible to look at the monitor on the set, see pretty much exactly what you're going to have. Um, I, I look at it and I know, okay, in the final digital process, I'm gonna darken that wall a little bit or, or change the uh, overall color. But, but for the most part, um, it's gotten to the point where the on-set evaluation is, um, almost as good as what it will be like in the final stage.
use. So I, I enjoy the fact that I can, um, I can craft the visuals um, pretty accurately on the set as opposed to uh, having to um, be the only one who can visualize it and then um, hope that that's what everyone else wanted to see. Well, speaking of film, and this was obviously still when I would believe the film process was happening and not digital, was you were involved in one of the projects that I enjoyed as a child. And it was considered one of the last true pencil on paper in terms of animation, that being who framed Roger Rabbit. How much experience did you have with animation prior to taking on that job? Well, <clears throat> I have to say that as a, um, as a kid, I was fascinated by animation. And so uh, from the age of, I don't know, 10 or 12, I saw every Disney film. Um, I read every book I could find that explained the process. You know, so I, I had a, a pretty deep background in, in the animation process um, prior to Roger Rabbit. And um, I think that was a major, major help for me <clears throat> because um, I didn't have to learn something new, a foreign um, kind of art form. Um, I just um, understood it immediately and applied it to taking it to the next step, to, to advancing how we uh, composited um, live action and animated characters together in the same world. So I, uh, I had a, a pretty, decent, uh, pretty decent education prior to Roger Rabbit that I think helped quite a bit. Well, I have heard anyway that they are remaking Roger Rabbit, or at least they were prior to COVID and everything that's been going on in the real world. Are you involved with that new project? No, um, I know that they've talked about doing it for a while. Um, I, I heard um, about two story ideas that had been presented, but Disney and uh, Spielberg, who were partners in the film, um, didn't uh, agree exactly on what the story should be. So I, I know that it, it's lay, lay dormant for quite a while. Um, and now I, I guess uh, uh, to try to do a, a new one. It'll be interesting to see what uh, what happens in this new world. Will they go to um, digital animation instead of uh, the, the look of pencil and paper? Um, it would be. Um, I think it would be weird if suddenly uh, Roger and all of the tunes looked like uh, the 3D characters that are in contemporary animated stories, you know. Um, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a story about that traditional sort of, I guess you'd call it flat look of drawn characters compared to the uh, intensely 3D looking. So it'll be interesting to see what, uh, what do they come up with. Yeah, and I, I'd be curious to know, and I know it's not your department, but seeing uh, 
both Warner Brothers characters and Disney characters, because I think that was one of the few times the licenses were together, and I know that's all above your pay grade anyway, seeing all those different characters from different companies together. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that um, I, I sort of enjoyed about Roger Rabbit is that uh, all of these animated characters that we had grown up with and loved, um, almost every single one of them, with the exception of, I think, Popeye um, and uh, one other character, all of the people who owned the, uh, the rights to them allowed them to all appear together at the same time. And I think it made for an, an interesting but authentic experience for the audience that they were indeed looking at a complete world of, um, of the animated characters of the, of the time, um, as opposed to um, just having the, the characters of one company. Exactly. But speaking of... We were discussing quality of the technology and everything else like that. When you look at yourself, and I know it's hard to look at oneself and be, I don't know, I guess you would say 100% objective, but we also do beat ourselves up as well. What do you think, is there a certain quality about yourself that has allowed you to continue to work in such a difficult field in the entertainment business? Well, it's interesting. I, I uh, when I teach uh, film classes and, and talk to young filmmakers and and all, very often I'm asked, "Well, what what is it that I, as a uh, emerging filmmaker, need to know or do to become successful? Successful meaning working and or being creative and so forth." Um, and I, I, I think that as I uh, look back at my career it it was about several things um i was interested from a uh, child so i had a long you know they they um, talk about uh, 10,000 hours they they talk about um successful people before they began their work or before they entered their work they had um, they an estimate about 10,000 hours that people have spent learning and being immersed, whether it's musicians, whether you're artists, whether uh, businessmen, um, people who were interested for a long time. They didn't try to start from zero. So I think that adds a lot. You, It's the education that you get by being just interested in what it is you want to do. So I think that's important. Having a, having a background where <clears throat> you, you enjoyed doing whatever it is that you uh, hope to accomplish in, in film, whether it's story writing, whether it's directing, whether it's photography, whether it's wardrobe design or production design or um, makeup or any of those things that, that you've, you've, given yourself a um, a history of learning um, the, 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 the final chapter prepared. So I think that's uh, important. Um, I think it's important to understand working with people 
um, not to think of yourself as the sole arbiter of a particular um, art or, or point of view or, or whatever, that it is an incredibly collaborative um, art form and that you have to um, be able to work with people and learn um, how, how to uh, include everybody in the creative process and how to um, <clears throat> allow people their creative freedom. So there's a, an awful lot of um, management and personal skills that go, go into it. It's not just learning about lighting, for instance, and how to do it. It's about how do you apply it um, in storytelling, working with directors and actors and, and all of the creative stuff. So um, I often point out that um, my feeling is that, um, you know, what we do as creative people on a, on a, a film on the set is about uh, half creative and knowledge and, and, um, and um, technique and about half people skills um, being uh, able to, to work with a large number of people and <clears throat> allow them their creativity and get the best out of them, but still apply your own uh, creativity. Well, you mentioned about, teaching these younger folks in college classes. And also I know you've done the ASC master classes and you've been able to talk to the next generation of filmmakers for many years now. Has there ever been something that floored you in terms of when they brought something to the table, whether it be a question or their thought process in terms of what they're trying to accomplish in their business? Um, no, I don't. I don't think um, <clears throat> in in general. No, most uh, most dedicated and and interested film students. At, as I teach a class of about forty at a uh, university or somewhere, I can look out and and as I work with them and listen to their questions, find that there's probably two or three out of the forty who I think get it. Who, who will potentially go on to becoming, um, you know, successful. Um, and and um, <clears throat> so that's, that's one thing I, I notice is that, um, um, that there are, um, there's, there's an awful lot of um, the unknown for film students that of what lies ahead. I, I remember uh, one one thing that sticks out is when I was at UCLA Film School, and um, <clears throat> and I, I was um, in my final year. I had a friend who uh, was a fellow film student, and um, I for the the period I grew up in in the '60s um, was the hippie period. Everybody had flamboyant dress, <clears throat> bell-bottom pants, um, paisley shirts. And this particular fellow always wore a sport coat. Uh, you could tell he was going to fit into the mainstream. And uh, <clears throat> one day we, uh, one day we, were, uh, we were talking and uh, my friend, 
in the sport coach said, you know, when, when I graduate from film school, I will do anything to, to succeed. I will write or I'll produce or I'll direct. And I said, okay, it's a short list. What would you sweep the editing room floor to get started? Oh, no, 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 no. No, I'm a... Well, <clears throat> as a result, I don't think I've ever heard of him again um, because his, his idea of entering, of contributing, was very narrow. He had the idea that he was above all of that messy work. And I think that that's something that um, I, I always sort of expound or preach to uh, film students is do anything you possibly can in the film business. Um, <clears throat> I, I started out taking any job I could get. I did makeup on a couple of films. I did um, special effects. I did editing. Um, I was a grip and an electrician. Um, so, it, you know, I, I encourage people to, uh, to get, <clears throat> I encourage people to get um, their, their experience in every uh, sort of part of the craft that they can. So I, as a result, uh, I, I think that um, anybody who's really interested in getting into the business and succeeding needs a, a broad understanding of, uh, of the process, the, the creative process, and um, a, a broad understanding of how they can learn it and how they can apply it. Uh, and a lot of times I find that um, my, my colleagues um, who are very good at a particular skill or art form in the business often started somewhere else. And, um, and they, they found their way because they knew they loved the creativity of film. Um, they just didn't know exactly what it is they wanted to do. And then they find their way. Well, speaking of creativity, uh, one of the most iconic shots that most people reference is the initial shot or one of the initial shots in Halloween where you made the transition through the house and stuff. And now I know it was a unique camera setup or it was at least new to film work at the time. Can you tell us about how you set that up? Well, um, that was just about the period that they'd come out with the Steadicam, um, a unique device that supported the camera and allowed a camera operator to essentially wear it on his body on, with a vest that went around and an arm that took the weight, allowed the camera to float. So you didn't translate all of your walking motion back and forth, up and down to the camera. It sort of allowed the camera to float through the scene and, and had a lot of flexibility as far as how you could aim it up and down, pan it left and right and so forth. And um, so that, that intrigued me. Um, and it had been used a couple of times on a, uh, a shot or two in a film, but nobody had used it extensively. And uh, John Carpenter also saw um, 
the device and and um, he he said what a unique look it gave and he wanted to use it uh, more as part of the storytelling rather than just a convenient camera platform. So um, he, uh, he came up with this idea for a shot that went through the, uh, the Myers house and the audience became part of uh, the storytelling rather than <clears throat> cutting from angle to angle to uh, show the process of, of um, our um, menacing figure um, going through the house, which would have been the need in the old days. <clears throat> what, uh, what John wanted to do was float the audience through this experience, um, which is what we did. We, we worked uh, for the better part of the afternoon creating the shot, rehearsing it. <clears throat> I had to um, interesting ways to light it so that uh, the camera wouldn't see the lighting. Um, and um, the house was, was unique in that it was very small. <clears throat> so the, uh, the doorways and especially the staircase that the camera goes up was very narrow, um, which, which created challenges. Um, but we um, we worked out the shot, and it became uh, very iconic. And um, you know, at the time, it was a new experience for uh, an audience. And we used the um, we used the device, the the uh, Panaglide. It was called by Panavision. Um, we used the device um, not only for that opening shot, but in order to create the feeling that we were. Michael Myers watching, or um, it was uh, taking the audience through the experience. And uh, it became a, a, um, a very useful tool and has since become sort of just the standard uh, for, for a lot of uh, filmmaking, featured films, TV series. Everybody has, carries a, a Steadicam now to do um, quick and easy moving shots and, and involving the audience in the drama. Well, it was funny because I was talking to a fan of the show this morning prior to getting ready to come on here with you. And he brought up another shot, which I found interesting and completely forgot about, but don't know how I did that, was during that movie where Lori or Jamie Lee Curtis right after she finds a lot of her friends murdered and Michael is coming out of the closet there. Uh, was it the same type of process as far as the lighting and such? Yeah, I think, um, I think I enjoyed Halloween because it was one of the first films out of uh, probably 16 or so films I had made prior to that, that were kind of low budget action movies. Um, Halloween allowed me and and uh, and John to um, to create the mood using lighting and using visuals uh, more than I had um, had the opportunity to do before. So um, any any time we could, we uh, applied some visual lighting thing, and um, often what they uh, 
refer to and talk to is about the uh, the shot where Jamie Lee has found all of her uh, her friend victims, and she runs and she is thinks she's hiding against a wall next to a uh, a dark closet, um, and it's it's black, and we are wondering, as an audience perhaps, is somebody going to leap out of that closet with a knife? and scare us with a sudden, you know, um, scare tactic. And <clears throat> uh, John said, no, I, I think we ought to do something different. Let's let the audience gradually see this figure that's lurking, the danger that's lurking. Um, and I said, okay, we can do that. Um, I'll, I'll set up a light on his face and I'll use a dimmer to uh, turn the light way down and then gradually bring the light up uh, almost as if the audience's eyes are getting used to the dark and Jamie Lee doesn't notice. And um, <clears throat> it became a very effective moment, I think, because um, you could watch the movie with an audience and when you get to that shot, um, you can feel them, you know, sort of like say, oh my gosh, you know, she's escaped, she's safe. And then as the light comes up, you sense the tension rising in the audience. Um, it's, it's, you know, and in a vocal audience, um, which is, you know, what, what you get a lot of times in, in a good horror film, um, the audience goes, oh, oh no, oh no, and, and around you, you know, the audience is, is reacting. Um, that's when you know you've got them, um, that uh, you, you've involved them emotionally. In, uh, in so I, uh, I, I enjoyed that particular shot um, quite a bit. Well, you mentioned a good point in the vocal uh, audience. If you were to go to a theater to watch something, even if you weren't involved with the project, just for your own personal entertainment, do you get a kick out of those vocal audience members with you, or are you more focused on trying to see what you what you're watching on the screen, trying to dissect it? Well, I think that's the um, one of the reasons that uh, I enjoy going to the theater, and and an audience enjoys the theater at home. I think as you watch, you you feel safe. You're in you know the surroundings that you know. Uh, maybe you're by yourself. You're with two, three friends watching a film, knowing that anytime you need to, you can just stop the film, get up, and go and and um, go to the bathroom, go get a drink of water, uh, a snack. And there's a certain certain kind of um, safety and security in that experience compared to a theater <clears throat> where, where you're with a bunch of people who are going to react in a particular way. It amplifies your reaction because you realize, Oh yes, it is scary or it is funny. Um, and, and so I think that the theater is an important part of what we do. It's a shame we've, we've lost it temporarily. Um, because uh, I, I hope people don't get too used to just sitting at home watching a film and they, they won't venture out to experience it the way 
<clears throat> the way it's always been made, um, you know, from the very beginning of the motion picture, it was designed to be projected in a theater for a, a lot of people to experience together. Um, and over a, a great period of time, uh, that grew and grew to big giant movie houses where a lot of people could experience and they could all laugh together or, or be sad for the poor girl or whatever it is that they were trying to do. And um, so now, um, you know, with the advent of television and with the fact that you're this, the screens are bigger and bigger in your house compared to what I grew up with as a kid as a television was a relatively small box. Um, now, you know, it can be more immersive, um, especially for dedicated people who, who uh, invest in a big, sharp televisions that can make their their living room a, um, a a great viewing area um you know some people i'm <clears throat> i'm dismayed when i hear people say oh yeah yeah i i saw that movie i watched it on my phone um we weren't we we didn't design the films to be seen on a telephone on a iPhone or whatever, <clears throat> even an iPad isn't big enough. Um, so um, I, I'm dismayed when people do that and, and they, they think of it as the same as their Facebook or whatever, it's just content. It isn't an emotional experience. They're just watching on their phone to get the essence of the story and, and who is the girl and who is the guy and, and, um, you know they they miss out on all of the creativity and craftsmanship that has gone into it by a lot of people now i know you've done a convention or two over the years and they are when the fans at least at those type of shows tend to be some of the smarter fans in terms of the film work and tv work and genre work in general What's the most unique thing fans might come up and ask you about or tell you, at least from their perspective, about whatever project they bring up to you? Well, I, I really enjoy going to conventions <clears throat> because it's a very often a one-to-one -one contact I have with a fan. Now, there can be hundreds, thousands of fans there, but most of the time... Um, I talk posters, uh, one sheet, photos they would like me to, to uh, sign to them. Um, and it's very rewarding to know that they've gone out of their way to come to a convention to celebrate uh, the, the genre, perhaps if it's a horror convention or science fiction or whatever. Um, to celebrate the um, their their appreciation, the audience's appreciation for the work that so many of us have done, and I I really enjoy talking to people and and getting their perspective. <clears throat> you know what what did they like about the film? You know, so many of them come up and say, "Oh, you know, it was the first uh, it was the first horror film that my parents let me watch," or um, you know it was uh, one of the best I'd seen 
uh, up to that point or whatever, you know, so there's a, a lot of rewarding um, emotional experience I have <clears throat> talking to, um, to fans who, who come there. And the fact that they go out of their way to come to a convention means that they're very dedicated. They're interested in the genre, um, but um, they're also interested in the, um, the storytelling, um, the, um, the, the historical value perhaps of um, that particular film that I worked on. And um, so it's, it's great to see people dedicated enough to come to a convention that um, have, um, you know, have had a, a great enough experience that they, they go out of their way to participate. Um, you know, there's for every one of those people, there's probably a hundred people who love the movie, but, um, you know, are, have been just watching it um, and enjoying it as opposed to becoming, um, you know, a dedicated uh, fan who becomes a collector perhaps. Well, I actually just thought about this and I have a additional question before we wrap up, but I was part of a wash along for one of the nightmare movies on Friday, this past Friday, actually. And Robert England happened to pop in. And one of the things he was talking about was he thinks that maybe too much knowledge is out there as far as the production of films. Do you think it's true that there's too much information, at least in terms of the process of making a film or are you one that don't mind people wanting to learn and understand every little nuance of making a movie? Yeah, that's an interesting point that, um, um, you know, if you look, back in film history to the tremendously popular uh, times of the uh, late 30s, the, the 40s. Um, people went to see movies and maybe they would know something about the stars, <clears throat> the leading lady, the guy, but uh, very little about the actual process. And um, it, it, that wasn't something that was was given out. Sometimes there'd be a little article, if you if you look back, uh, that talks about uh, the nuance of making a, a scene out of some movie. But people didn't know the, the you know the actual process very well, and it kind of kept the process, the the movies, um, mystery. You know, you you approach them more from the standpoint of what they were made for stories to. Uh, emotionally intrigue you. Um, as, um, as we grew up starting, I would guess probably the 50s, but certainly the 60s, there was more and more um, opportunity to explain and reach an audience. Uh, fan magazines, um, uh, magazines that talked about the, the filmmaking process and now, <clears throat> on the internet, you can get trailers, you can get behind the scenes, you can get uh, um, critical analysis of uh, films and genres. And so uh, it's possible for 
become not just a, uh, a viewer, uh, an, an audience of, uh, of a film, like it would have been in the 30s, 40s, to becoming a film student and um, following the process, you know, understanding um, the special effects are now on computers, but also how it's done. And you can do the process in your home on your own laptop, something that was absolutely impossible in the past. If you want to make a movie and um, tell a story visually, you reach into your pocket and pull out your phone and you can make a film. You can dump that into your computer. You can become the editor. You can add sound effects. You can become your own filmmaker um, very, very easily. So I, I think um, it's kind of a two-edged sword, you know. Um, hopefully, those people who have become, you know, film students um, and film appreciators uh, and know how it's done and what's, what's actually behind the curtain, um, hopefully they, they watch not only for the story and, and um, the entertainment uh, or the experience, but they also watch to appreciate the work that has gone into it, the creativity and the technology that have joined together to make contemporary films. Well, speaking of uh, films, I think it's a good way to end here. Obviously, you were involved with the Back to the Future series. Now, I know two and three were filmed consistently. Do you think that's a good thing to film two movies together like that? Or should it be separate like what one and two was? Well, I think it probably depends on the film. If number one uh, of whatever the series of three and very often they they plan that they're going to make three films out of a film if it's successful um, actors contracts are written that they are obligated um, to uh, uh, work in sequel number two and three um, and um, so forth so um, I, I think that if uh, the first film is successful that um, that the filmmakers say, well, what was success? What did the audience like about it? What did they react to? Um, did they really they like the girl better than the guy? Uh, okay, well, the sequel will be more about her. Um, and did they like the um, the uh, sequence that uh, where the certain special thing happened? Well, we'll have to add some more of that in the sequel. Um, <clears throat> so I. I think that, that it, it becomes a test garden for um, you know, what to include in the sequels. Um, what, what happened with um, Back to the Future 2 and 3 was the fact that um, they knew what it was in the first film that um, the audience reacted to. And uh, then they decided they would just make one film that answered that. And what they found was that the film that um, they were going to do, the one film, was too long. It was going to be almost three hours. Um, and they weren't sure an audience would go for three hours of a 
so-called light movie, um, not a heavy historical drama or something like that. <clears throat> so um, it was decided to um, cut the one movie into two. Um, so it was a little different process. It wasn't as if they said, okay, let's, let's write two films and uh, make them. Uh, and I think that helped because by writing one sequel that became two, um, it, it was very cohesive. Uh, things that were in the second, uh, the, the third film related to the second film and the second film related to the first and the second film would set up what was going to be in the third and so forth. So um, that was a little more unique in the uh, Star Wars films and the, the uh, superhero films and so forth where they, they, uh, they write the, the sequels to react to what the audience wanted um, or liked out of the first. And, and I think that's, that's not a bad way. It's, it um, makes sure that the audience is satisfied in the sequel uh, or sequels um, in such a way that, um, you know, they, it, it answers for them the questions they had about um, what happened in the original film. Well, before I wrap, what is that award you got sitting behind you over your shoulder? Oh, um, that's an Emmy award that I got um, for a, uh, uh, a TV um, documentary. I'm a big documentary guy, so. Well, I have taken up enough of your time, Mr. Cundy. Thank you so much for your time. Well, it's been my pleasure. Are you annoyingly even keel? E-methamine could be right for you. I have a disease, all right? I need help! E-methamine lets you get gagged up on whoop chicken parts without yellowing one's teeth. Uh, yeah. Contact your doctor today if you experience the following. Oh my god! Increases in blood flow, boost in testosterone, ending of erectile dysfunction. This medicine is made for extreme cases of being even keel or having extreme depression. Ah, oh, come on! Side effects include fits of rage, acne, bleeding in folks around you, whooping cough, hallucinations, comas, trouble swallowing, decrease in semen, increasing amounts of selling yourself, amnesia, night terrors, higher mortgage rates, and increased sensations in not having suicidal urges. Oh my. Not all football helmets are created equal. Zenith, the industry leader in protective technology, is the only helmet in the game with adaptive head protection featuring a shock suspension system that can move independently from the helmet shell. Headquartered and developed in Detroit, Zenith is committed to player safety and revolutionary innovation. Zenith is proud to protect athletes at every level from Wee to the pros. Learn more about the Zenith difference at zenith.com. That's X-E-N-I-T-H.com. Hi, I'm Alexandra Paul, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio.